Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and again, today, I have the great privilege of introducing our next guest, Dr. Tim Levine. Dr. Levine is a professor and the chair of communication studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Before arriving at UAB, he has taught at universities all around the world, including Korea and Hawaii. He has an extensive resume in the world of education and academic publishing. He has published over 125 referee journal articles. His passions are researching deception, persuasion, credibility assessment, interpersonal communication, and his research is thorough and exhausting. He's been quoted in multiple books and magazine articles, probably most famously quoted or most accessibly quoted heavily in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. Tim's book, Duped, is a must read for people who are truly fascinated and dedicated to learning how and why people choose to share the truth, withhold the truth, or manipulate the truth in any given situation. It is backed, it's basically a one stop shop for the majority of academic research that's been completed on the concept of truth and deception prior to the publication of the book. It's exhaustive in how he re- in how he quotes other research and other researchers, how he lays it all out together, how he shares his findings of his, his research, dives into truth default theory and truth bias and applies them in a way that we can all take outside of the investigation context as well. His expertise is world-renowned. I'm very happy that he's taken the time to join us today, and I'm really looking forward to sharing our conversation and his lessons, his research with us. Before we go any further, of course, we've got to thank our sponsors, as always, Humantel. Please, if you are interested in expanding your ability to understand what it means when people's facial expressions change or when their body language change, most likely within the context of the situation, of course, please visit Humantel tell.com and enter the code inquasive 25 i-n-q-u-a-s-i-v-e-2-5 for a 25 percent discount on all of their online training please also head over to emotional intelligence magazine at ei-magazine.com to check out all of their online catalog of resources everything emotional intelligence related from articles to podcasts to videos to events to training programs to resources it's they've got so much going on over there please check them out And of course, for the professional interviewers who are watching, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com and look through all the resources they have there from their membership benefits to the certification, to the programs, to the resources, to the legal updates, to the events, to the networking that takes place on that site. They are solely dedicated to providing elite interviewers with all the tools they need to be successful in all of their conversations. So head over to CertifiedInterviewer.com and check out the International Association of Interviewers as well. Thank you all for taking the time to join us today and watch or listen to this conversation. We're grateful for it. And now without any further ado, Dr. Tim Levine. Good morning, Tim. It is great to see you. Thank you so much for sharing your time this morning. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be back. Oh, my pleasure. I've been really excited about this conversation. I know we've had the opportunity to speak before, in our previous conversations, I don't know if I specifically told you this. So when I was sitting down to start writing my book, I came across Dupes. And when I came across it, bought myself a copy. That was actually the first time I reached out to you. And I literally said to myself, I probably should read this before I continue on with my book. 
and I'd have to go back and double check, but I believe you were the person that I quoted the most by a considerable margin once I finally sat down to finish mine. So want to make sure that we have the time to highlight your work and your research, what you've done, what you're working on now, because I find it amazing, applicable inside and outside of investigation and the depth and the care that you took with the research you did and the results that you came out with really speaks for itself. And I believe that they're very important to highlight. Well, thank you for those kind words. That's, okay. you know, that's what we, uh, we strive for. Uh, you're very welcome. And, and they were well-earned. So to start with a question that probably isn't the most difficult question you've ever been asked, and I'm sure you've been asked it before, what lit your fire for dedicating so much time and so many years and so much work to the study of truth and deception? Uh, you're right. This is a question that is uh, certainly up there with the uh, most frequently asked. It is so often asked that uh, I start out a duped in chapter one uh, with a story <laughs> because it's the thing that everybody wants to know. Yep. Um, I, I didn't start out to study deception. I went to uh, I went to I was interested in persuasion. Um, as an undergrad, I came across a bunch of persuasion research. That was uh, the most interesting thing. When I went to grad school, I started getting into uh, interpersonal communication as well. Uh, I found that uh, I find just about anything uh, to do with humans um, really interesting. I got into that. Uh, then, when I was doing my PhD work, uh, my uh, my university hired a new professor. Uh, who studied deceptions, Steve McCornack, and I was assigned as his research assistant. And he started uh, studying deception because uh, he got burned by an ex-girlfriend uh, really badly. Uh, so he was interested in um, how knowing people affects whether uh, you can de de uh, detect deception or not. And uh, common sense might suggest that the better we know people, the better we would be able to tell if they're lying or not. Um, but as you and I both know, common sense doesn't often work uh, in the area of deception. And what he found suggested kind of the exact opposite. Uh, the better you know somebody, the more you tend to believe them, the more you tend to believe them. Uh, and, he, and he published this. I was his undergraduate thesis work. And I was just like, I thought it was really cool and really I'm impressed by it. So I got myself assigned uh, to being his research assistant. And uh, we did some follow-up studies on that. And, uh, you know, I saw in the data how powerful this thing we call truth bias is. And uh, so I got curious. And, um, you know, every, when you do research, every uh, finding you get, leads to more questions than answers. Uh, you, you know, you set out to try to, you know, discover what's going on with this thing, right? And you find a little bit of that out with study, but it, it leads to a lot more questions than answers. Uh, so then you have to go study those things. And so I got started down the path of just kind of, what's up with this truth bias thing? Why are people so bad at detecting lies? Um, the findings didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the findings, I think, just objectively didn't support the theories of the time. Um, so I just, I just, uh, and, and also deception was an area uh, where things aren't what they seem. 
So there's cool findings. So it, it's an opportunistic topic to study. Uh, if you're an ambitious young social scientist, because obviously there was big discoveries yet to be made. Um, obviously, there was a lot of room for improvement in, in the way things were done. Um, there were a lot of surprise findings. Um, so much of social science is just documenting common sense. And deception was an area where um, things weren't common sense. And it's a topic that other people are interested in. So I think maybe the thing that attracted me most to deception wasn't necessarily my interest in it, but the fact that other people are interested in it. No kidding. And uh, it's good to do research on things that other people uh, find interesting because then uh, there's more of a market for your work. That's a great way to approach it. So many times we talk to people, I wanted to do this, but in this case, it was looking at what does the crowd want and, and how do we provide them with that? Right out of the gate, you mentioned truth bias. And the work that I do, it's pretty common that at least one time on one break in a session in any given week, someone will come up to me and say, Mike, I like to think I give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to think I trust people. But time and time again, I feel like at some point I get fooled and I should have seen this coming. And when I do, when I hear that now for years now, the next phrase out of my mouth is, are you familiar with truth bias? Have you read Tim Levine? So because of how pervasive this is, and honestly, if, if I can paraphrase correctly, how our brains are essentially wired, can you quickly walk us through truth bias and then the resulting truth default theory that a lot of your work, especially with Duped, was built around? Sure. So in traditional deception detection studies, uh, they work a lot like a true-false test. So show people a bunch of clips, half of which are true, half of which are lie. Uh, it doesn't have to be video clips. You could do it with audio. You could do it with written statements. Uh, you can do it in face-to-face. -face. Uh, but, you know, there's segments of communication, which are either deception or honest. And people do this true-false task where they have to sort them. And the big finding from the literature is people are just a little bit better than chance. So they're uh, on average 54%. And if you have them judge enough statements, the closer you get to 54%. So it's, it, there's not some people who are better at this task than other. Everybody, if you give them a long enough true-false test, um, gravitates towards. Um, but there's a catch to it which is people tend to pick true more than false. As a consequence, they get the truths right probabilistically more often than they get the lies right. The, if we scored the lies separately from the honest statements, the honest statements are 60-something percent accurate, and the deceptive statements are something like 40%. And when you average them, you get the 54%. So this tendency to guess through more often than lie, independent of what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. It's just, you guess true more often, that's called truth bias. The difference in accuracy between accuracy for truths and lies, uh, we call the veracity effect. Yes. What the imp big implication of this is that if you're talking to somebody who's honest, you're much more likely to be right. But if you're talking to somebody who's dishonest, you're more likely to be fooled. So it's the honesty of the communication 
that predicts the accuracy of the outcome. But this all prompts suspicion, right? Because when you're in a deception detection experiment and the researcher telling you some of these are truths and some of these are lies, right? And you have to make circle truth lie. This brings this to mind. So people are truth biased even when they know their task is to detect lies. So the idea of the truth fault is what happens if you didn't know this? What happens if you and I are just talking? Does this even come to mind? And the truth default is no, not unless there's something that gets you thinking about it. So honesty is the default mode of communication. I'm going to be honest with you unless I have a reason not to be. You're going to believe me unless you have a reason to doubt what I'm saying. So skepticism has to be triggered. Dishonesty lying has to be motivated. So the idea of the truth fault is is honesty is the default mode of communication. And the premise is, is that this is a fabulous thing because it lets us communicate. So there's no point in doing an educational podcast, right? If it truths and lies are equally likely, right? There's no point in students paying tuition at my education if what I was teaching them might just as well be bullshit, right? You can't pick up a nonfiction book. We can't learn anything, right? Technology never advances. Um, We can't develop relationships with our fellow humans. We can't work together on tasks. So we have to we have to believe people in order for us to function as a species uh, because humans aren't you know lone actors you know we're not we're not out there alone in the world everything in our life revolves around other humans and this is the whole story of our species and this requires forming relationships and working together uh, in groups and all that requires uh, believing other people but just catch because. Uh, the same cognitive abilities that let us communicate, let us deceive. And so that if the person is deceiving, um, uh, then uh, we, we're very vulnerable uh, to that. Hence the title of my book, Duped. I love how you wrap that all together. And it really is. And I, and I try to get the message across when people ask me, it's beneficial to us. To walk yes. around assuming most of the time, believe it or not, people are probably being honest with us. Is most of the time they are. Yeah. And how miserable will we be if we were walking around all the time just assuming everybody was lying to us? And like you said, relationships and progress and all those things. But then understanding when is it realistic to be a little bit more skeptical? In what situations, in what conversations? And I know it's contextual based and, and there's many, yeah, many absolutely. to it. But understanding when to turn your radar on and when to leave it off then becomes the key skill. And that's not just for investigators. That's in our personal lives. Your your poor friend that that got duped by his girlfriend. In our business lives, of course, you hear the business stories all the time. So when you are working with people, are there any particular contextual factors you ask them to be on alert for as indications for when maybe they should turn that radar on and try to kick themselves out of truth default? Uh, I think there's there's two in particular. Um, one, and they're, they're interrelated. Uh, one is uh, when the person might have a, a motive for deceiving us in some way other than just kind of 
politeness sort of things. Yes. Right. So if somebody gives me a compliment, um, you know, I, I never know whether they're the compliments, you know, <laughs> you're giving, you're giving me talking me up. Right. Um, uh, maybe, maybe that was sincere. I'm not doubting your sincerity. I was a hundred percent sincere. We'll clarify that one real fast. But, but we all know that, you know, particularly in American culture, people will, um, you know, do some compliments sometimes that aren't. And if a compliment's a little less than sincere, it doesn't make any difference, right? So, but, but when, when they do have a motive to deceive for some kind of something that matters, right? When there's a motive there, um, uh, then my, my ears perk up, right? Um, the second thing is when something just doesn't seem to fit right. So there's this kind of plausibility, right? Um, so when I hear something, I go, that's odd. Right? That That's something that makes my ears perk up. Um, third thing that I catch is uh, my good buddy Steve McCornack uh, has information manipulation theory, uh, which lays out four ways to deceive people. You can say things that are false. Uh, you can omit things. Uh, those two are really, really hard to pick up on in conversation unless you're looking for it. Mm-hmm. But the other two are kind of diversionary responses and ambiguity. So when people are changing the subject on me and steering conversation away from something, that sometimes perks up my ears. Uh, or when when people say things that have multiple meanings, um, that perks up my ears too. Now, none of these things lead me to go, oh, they're lying. Correct. Right? I just perk up my ears. Yeah. So there's there's these things. The other time is when there's really something at stake. Right. So if I'm buying a big ticket item, I'm going to spend some money. Um, you know, if I was deciding to get into a serious relationship with somebody, um, you know, something that's a that's a big commitment where if there was deception, it, there might not be deception there. But if there was, it would be really, really bad. Yes. Right. Um, you know, so if, if you're a, a TSA agent. Right. Ninety nine point nine whatever percent of people going through religious travelers, right? But those that aren't, right? So there's something important at stake here, right? Um, so you got you to perk up, right? And it's not because you suspect anyone, but it's because it's really important to know the truth in this circumstance. And I love that word circumstance. The the phrase I like to use, and I honestly stole it from a different context in an earlier life, is alert signal. Like it doesn't mean that somebody's lying, but to your point, if they're saying something that sounds a bit implausible, if something has changed in their delivery, if I believe I'm in a situation where they feel like there's a benefit or I feel like I might be at risk, then yeah, just keeping attention for those alert signals. You know, one of the things that's in I'm having a conversation with a former team of mine, Dave Thompson, coming up. And one of the things that we really talk a lot about is walking the center line in any conversation 
and then letting our observations or the, the situation begin to dictate which way we lean. And you can come back and forth multiple times in a conversation. But if you go in just expecting deception, you're going to end up assigning that label to very truthful things. And if you go in just blind that everything's going to be the truth, then somebody might slip something past us, which is why I love, and it comes up several times in your book, but it, it typically comes up in small pieces. Like if you're not really looking for it, somebody might look past it. The concept of situational familiarity, when it comes to picking up on, we'll call it ulterior motivations instead of just assigning everything, the, right. the label lie. How important is it for people to develop or try to maximize their situational familiarity? Oh, it's probably the number one best thing you can do. Um, you know, situations vary in how much. So, so how much context you have, how much situational familiarity you have um, can sometimes be absolutely decisive, right? So when you have a bit of information, it can sometimes be entirely diagnostic. Yes. Um, other times, it just tips the scale a little bit this way or a little bit that way. Um, you know, but in an interviewing context, I would think you would never, ever, ever, if at all humanly possible, ever want to go in blind. Right? You want as much, you want to know as much background knowledge as you possibly can. So the more you know, about uh, the topic, right? So, you know, I'm an academic. Uh, one of the tasks I do is I uh, I review um, other people's research for publication. I serve as a peer review uh, in the peer review process a lot. It's very different if I'm reading a research study on deception, right? Where I've read a big chunk of the references that are being cited in this right? I've done the research enough. I know what the bindings look like, right? Um, then if I'm reading something uh, that I, I don't have that kind of back, background knowledge. So the more situational familiarity, and, and then on the other end, I'm, I'm one of the things I was dealing with this morning before I got on with you is one of my own papers. And one of the peer reviews think they found a fatal flaw in my paper. Um, they're about to get their ass handed to them. <laughs> um, because as it turns out, I have a lot more situational familiarity than they do. Right. So they make this argument. Here's this flaw in it. Right. But I know all these other things on why it's not that, that I I'm, I'm presuming they're acting in good faith. Right. But the trouble is we don't know what we don't know. And when we don't know what we don't know, we step in it. We run the risk of stepping in. Sure. And when we're interacting with somebody who does know those things, right? So this is why you, you know, it's, it's information asymmetry. Uh, if you want to think about it that way, right? The more knowledge you have in your hip pocket, right? The uh, more advantageous that's going to be in figuring out what's going on. And, and the, uh, you know, if you know things that I don't know, uh, that can give you an upper hand um, if it in in the deception detection thing uh, and vice versa. I love I just wrote it down. I love the phrase information asymmetry. I think that's a wonderful way to explain it. 
And then having the patience to keep that information to ourselves. Because often when people gather that information, they feel like the best thing to do is demonstrate that I know it, which is entirely giving away the strategic initiative in the conversation. We need to be withholding that. Nobody knows that we know it. And then we've got two opportunities with it. One is just be silent and have our own internal fact check running. Or second, if you want to test somebody's honesty, is start asking them a few questions that you already know the answer to. And if their answers jive with what you already know to be true, that doesn't mean they won't lie to you later, but it starts to set a precedent for how the conversation is likely going to travel. And you mentioned with investigations, but honestly, you mentioned buying, making big ticket purchases. If I'm going to go buy a car, a washing machine, a lawnmower, it doesn't matter. I want to do as much research as I can on the model I'm interested, comparative models, other places to buy it. So that way, when I enter into the negotiation, I can begin to test the waters. There's a, a silly story in my book where I had to get new carpet in the upstairs of my house. So the very first thing I did was I measured the upstairs of my house. Mm -hmm. How many square feet do I have? And when the guy came in and did his thing with a laser on his iPad to measure it all, and when I asked him how many, what's the total square footage of the second floor of my house? And he started stuttering, broke eye contact and said, well, you know, this doesn't really tell me that. All right. Well, now I know you're not being honest with me and I have a negotiate, I have an advantage in the upcoming negotiation on how much this project is going to cost me. So really in any situation with the power of the internet and the information that is out there, people have the ability to take a short time to prepare themselves and increase that situational familiarity, which is so important. In a lot of the programs I do now, there are components where we'll talk about truth and deception, but it's certainly not as prevalent as it was when I was focusing on investigations. I find often that people will admit to, it's, it's the human condition. So when I say admit, it might be a little bit of a strong word, becoming frustrated, upset, angry, disappointed, pissed off, take it personal when they feel somebody lied to them. So we talk a lot about understanding that people aren't lying to hurt you. They're lying to protect themselves. It has nothing to do with you. They'd lie to anybody else who was sitting in that chair. Let it go. There's, there's intelligence there. Let's use it to our advantage. But a lot of their interpretation of being lied to and the, the moral front accompanied with it comes from their expectations for how someone will communicate with them, which we've already mm -hmm. touched on a little bit. And then their reasonably frequently inaccurate interpretation of what they're observing. What, and I know this is discussed in depth in duped for the people that haven't read it yet. What do you find are the most common myths that people associate with deception that couldn't be farther from reliably indicative that someone's being less than honest? I think far and away is people's reliance on what I would call cues and particularly mm -hmm. nonverbal cues. So people um, and, and demeanor and how people are coming off. So yeah. people form uh, judgments on how people come off. And those influence incredibly. And I, I don't think really there's, there's nobody's immune to, um, to paying attention to this. People, people just like the confident, friendly extroverts and want to believe them. Uh, but Confident, friendly extroverts are coming off the way they are because they're confident, friendly extroverts, not because they're honest. Um, similarly, people are very, you know, somebody's a little high in trade anxiety, 
Um, you know, maybe they're a little bit on the spectrum, um, maybe just a little bit social awkward, or maybe just introverted. Um, people can mistake those for uh, dishonesty. So I think far and one, the, the, the huge, huge, huge misconception is people put way too much weight on um, how people come off. Uh, in, in interviewing for job interviewing, so in, in academic jobs, people you know come in for this two-day interview and they do what's called a job talk where they, they present their research. And this is incredibly powerful. I've watched how people come off shift full faculties into thinking this person would be a great hire or not a great hire, where probably there's a lot, lot, lot more information in their resume or CV on how good they're going to be in their prior teaching evaluations. And um, but how people present themselves has this outsized impact on other people's opinions of them. Um, so I think that's far and away the biggest myth. I love that you brought up demeanor and obviously I'm cheating a little bit. I've read the book. We've talked before, but that the concept of demeanor and what you just said, falling prey to the charismatic extrovert, not saying that all charismatic extroverts are liars or deceivers. It is so easy for people to steal a phrase, fall in love with the charisma and the extroversion that they're seeing that in my experience, the biggest mistake they, I guess two, number one, it just aligns with their preconceived notions and assumptions. Yeah, which confirmation leads bias. To, that leads to the second mistake, which is they don't ask detailed follow-up questions. Yeah. So personally, and I would love your thoughts on this, the more charismatic somebody appears in a conversation, from my perspective, the more important the follow-up questions become. Because I want to know, are they fantastic at what they do and they're also a charismatic person? Or are they a charismatic person that has traded on charisma their entire life and career? And as soon as we turn that bolt even one more click, things start to fall apart. Are there particular techniques that you've seen effective to help people get past that charisma block, if you will, to then get down into some of the more, not super granular, but at least follow-up opportunities in the conversations? Well, I think the the big way to get past that, and, and let me note that there's the risk on the other end too, which are the uh, the people who aren't charismatic. That doesn't mean they are deceptive. Oh, sure. Right. And 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 you you can be equally wrong with them. Uh, the trick is, we already talked about this, situational familiarity, familiarity, asking questions, listening carefully to the content of the answers. The content piece is great. There's another word that you used in your book that's currently escaping me. It's mildly embarrassment. It was content and not correlation. Content and context. Yes. Which, yes. which ties into the situational familiarity thing. Yes. So understand you. what's being said in the context in which it's being said. And the better you understand the context, the more you're able to understand what's being said. Context is king. Context is queen. We say it all the time. It really drives. We'll, we'll do exercises sometimes with people and we'll talk about, you know, when's, when's the time you thought you caught somebody lying and later found out it was true. 
which by the way, they're, they're already picking up on, or missing the fact that they said later they found out it was true, not immediately. Right. Um, and so how did you know that they were lying? And it typically comes back to some version of cues. But then we'll go through an exercise where we'll ask them what they believe the cues meant and we'll change the context of the situation. What would those cues mean if this was the context, if that was the context? And then you see people start to think and you realize that often, and I believe I'm quoting Cialdini here, we mistake what is focal for what is causal. So I believe your cues are telling me you're lying, but it's really the context this whole thing is happening in. And by the way, I didn't know you were lying until I verified it after. Your cues made me suspicious. It was my follow-up efforts that actually proved the lie. Can you share a little bit with us on the importance of understanding the difference between, I didn't catch you now, I found out later, and some common steps for people to maybe take or employ to keep themselves on that track once their suspicion has been aroused? Well, most uh, most deception, I don't know in, in interviewing context, but just in everyday life, um, a huge proportion is detected well after the fact. So if it is a deception about something important, uh, the truth has a way of coming out over time. Um, and this is this is because of the truth bias and truth fault. This is this is uh, very typical and uh, it, it's more likely more likely than not. Um, but the best thing you can do is just kind of keep an, keep an open mind because just because you believe something now, you got to be willing to you know revisit, uh, what you think you gotta, uh, you gotta update your current beliefs given the data you have at the given time with the understanding that, uh, what we think now might not, but what would be what we think at some later point in time, because as there's more information comes in, right. And if you're open-minded about that information, then, uh, then you change your opinions when you need to. I love how you said the truth has a funny way of coming out. If you run the experiment long enough to steal a word from your background, if you run the experiment long enough, the truth has a way of verifying itself. There's not in, in, the, in my belief, in the vast majority of situations, there's not the need to confirm it right now. No. We let the situation play out. We gather more data. We make more informed decisions. We update our perspective over time. In the spirit of getting the truth out, I know in your work, both with, within the publication of Duped and some of the projects you have going on outside and, and previous, you've done some work into studying effectiveness of different questioning techniques. Right. When it comes to obtaining the truth from, we'll just say people who are hesitant to share it, what has your research shown to be some of the more effective questioning techniques for people to be successful in that endeavor? Uh, this isn't my work per se, but for people who are reluctant, uh, the better you can establish rapport with them. Um, there's there's very few people who like don't want to talk with people that they like. Um, so uh, you know, the more you can be likable, the more you can uh, come off as being empathic, empathetic, um, the, the more likely people are to uh, uh, to open up to you. You want to be non-judgmental. Um, 
non non threatening. Pretty much. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I mean, I certainly can't contradict the research, but even in my experience, you just hit the biggest nails on the head. Develop rapport. Don't overdo it because then it comes across as building distrust instead of trust. But don't skip it either. Establish some sort of common connection. Be empathetic, understanding of their situation. If anything, non-judgmental. Don't embarrass them. And then given enough opportunity, once that relationship starts to develop, even over a smaller period of time, people will generally start to talk. Yeah. Uh, One of the really uh, crazy findings in deception detection experiments is accuracy for planned lies is the same as accuracy for spontaneous lies. Really? Which I take to mean that most people just uh, aren't that strategic. So I think people sometimes have this view of these liars who are just like these crazy strategic masterminds who have planned everything out. And, and, Maybe that happens sometimes, but for the most part, when we're communicating, we're putting together what we're saying on the fly, mm-hmm. right? And if you are saying something that's scripted, it, it comes off as scripted, right? So my guess is all your listeners can tell that what we're doing right now is entirely unscripted, right? And it would sound very, very different if if we had practiced and rehearsed uh, this. Uh, so what, what's being done is on the fly. Um, so just get people talking and, and good information will come. If you can get them talking, good information is likely to come out. Uh, just kind of the idea of these advanced countermeasures and everything. Um, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of, I just, I, I've met very, very, very few people in my life that are really high level strategic actors. Um, you know, the, the kind of super hyper successful Machiavellian. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they exist, they're a very small segment of the population. Sure. Or they're people that were in a profession where they, ex- where they were exposed to so much training, so much planning, so much preparation yes. that it just became a part of who they are, but they had those, the, like somebody who plays sports or does, plays music. They had the training and the practice to go along with it, to develop that skill. Yes. But, but most people don't have that. Agreed. Are there, a, is there, in your research, was there a particular style of question or a particular wording of a question that appeared to be more effective in getting people to open up after they were believed to have lied in order to tell the truth? Um, so after they've lied and you want them to... Admit. Um, if you confronting them with evidence, or uh, so if if you think that I know the truth, there is no reason for you to lie to me, right? Because deception can't function, right, without that information asymmetry. So if you think I have the information and I know what happened, there's n- Less point in you lying to me, but really have to be careful with false confessions. I'm working on a paper right now on false confessions. Fantastic. So um, let me, if, if, do we got time for me to go into this? We absolutely do. Yes. It's a very important topic. Uh, so I, 
when I study truths and lies, one of my main setups is uh, is this trivia game setup where uh, I recruit students. They come in the lab. They play a trivia game with the partner for a cash prize. Um, they think it's a team, but their partner's really uh, working for me. Uh, between the third and fourth question, the researcher gets called out of the room. The answers and the money are left in the room. Uh, they can cheat or not. But if they do cheat, um, we know it because uh, their partner reports on them. Um, but they don't know that that their partner's in on it. Uh, their partner suggests cheating but won't cheat unless they do. Uh, trivia master comes back, game's complete. We take them into another room, interview them. Uh, the goal of the interview is to try to find out if they cheated or not. And, you know, if they're lying, you know, almost initially everybody when I ask, did you cheat? Most people say no. Oh, most so. people don't cheat, by the way, because um, most people are honest. Uh, and a surprising number of people, when you ask them, did they cheat? Uh, a surprising number will say, will honestly admit they did. Really? Yeah. So, uh Kind of over several hundred of these, uh, more than 50%. Wow. Even though they could technically be expelled from their university. Um, so honesty is right, but some, some lie about it. But in my setup, nobody ever, ever, ever lies with a false confession. So, you know, 400 plus non-cheaters. Nobody's ever said, yeah, I cheated when they didn't. Unless I asked them to. So I I, uh, I asked a few people, I said, oh, you know, we're doing the study. Uh, would you say you cheated even though I know you didn't on tape? And then they're like, sure. I'll, right? But, but nobody ever spontaneously false confesses. But there's this whole experimental literature on false confession, which finds that false confessions are very easy to produce in the same kind of cheating setup. So this thing that's really been bugging me for years and years and years and years is why do false confession studies find false confessions? And my deception studies, using very, very similar research methods, never find them. And I think there's a few candidate answers. Uh, one is just motivation of the researcher. Um, False confession studies that don't find any false confessions fail. Right? Deception study isn't about false confessions. Right? So it might be that the goals of the interviewing are determining the outcome. If you go into the interview trying to get a confession, you can find false confessions. If you go into the interview trying to find the truth, right? then I think these uh, happen a lot less or maybe never. And my, what I would love to do is I would love to uh, go back into those false confession studies and ask those people who are signing their false confessions. Did you, did you really do this or are you just saying it? And my guess is they would all tell you. So I think if you want to avoid false confessions, you go in after the truth. Once you do find a confession, you don't stop. You ask them, I'm interested in the truth. Is this what really happened? And third, you never incentivize lying. Right? You never, ever, ever put them in a position where it's in their interest to falsely confess to you. 
right? So if they think that they're going to be nailed for something they didn't do, regardless, but they're going to be way better off if they lie, then people will lie when they have a reason. So you never give them a reason to lie. You go in looking for the truth. And I think those two things in combination, and whenever possible, if it's particularly if it's an investigative context, whether it's a true or false, you always try to validate with external evidence. Yes. So I think you do those three things. I think we could, you know, I'm I'm just speculating here. I think this kills almost all false confessions. I think you're getting pretty far down the right track in our experience. This is a passion of the group that I come from. And you hit on a huge one in the beginning. Am I going in looking for a confession or am I going in looking for the truth? And if I'm going in looking for a confession, how much of my ego and my biases and my need to win or dominate this conversation have taken over? And not only am I going to drive somebody to falsely confess, but I'm also going to miss the signals that they're telling me the truth. It's like the inversion of truth bias right? that you talked about before. So going in looking for the truth is one. Um, evidence-based interviewing whenever possible is great, but also withholding the evidence for as long as possible, not sharing details that only the person who did it would know. So withholding the, going and looking for the truth, withholding the evidence, um, establishing rapport, empathy, welcoming the other person's humanity, not putting them in a position that incentivizes them to lie, those things that you said. And then you mentioned it as well. After the fact, continuing to look for evidence that substantiates what you've learned. And and honestly, during the interview, and I've been there, I understand it. Sometimes in interviews, it took so much longer to get the truth than you expected. Like for whatever reason, this person had additional stories or alibis or they didn't want to say a word for the first 36 minutes. So, but literally one word. So by the time the, the truth does come out, it's almost like, okay, it's over. No, it's just beginning. Like that is actually the start of now the investigative interview where I need to ask better questions, more detailed questions, not just to lock in the details of what happened, but where can I go find objective evidence after the fact to substantiate what I've learned? And in my opinion, I believe, and now I'm probably going to step in it myself, but there's a responsibility in the field for the people who choose to prosecute based solely on confessions. I'm not saying to never do that because there are absolutely times where it's correct. It's warranted. It's the right thing to do. But when there are at all questions of the validity in the confession, what intermediary investigative steps are still available before a DA, a prosecutor, whoever, I don't want to call anybody else specifically decides to move that forward to try. So, I mean, all of those things, we could get into eyewitness testimony and other things, but, but really for the false confession in the way that we have typically looked at it is that in general terms, there's three types of false confessions and I'm sure different phrases would cover them. One is the voluntary false confession where I didn't do it, but my friend did. I don't want my friend to get in trouble. So I'll cop to it. Or sometimes, especially in like high profile cases, people will want the attention. So they will voluntarily confess to things they didn't do because they want the attention. And I can't medically diagnose why they do that, but there's probably something in their wiring that causes that to happen. The second is coerced internalized. 
And these typically happen with people who might have developmental disabilities or might be younger or might have no understanding of what's going on. So if an interviewer shares enough details of the case of what actually happened and is persistent and holds them too long and makes a number of other mistakes, then the person comes to believe that they actually did it, even though they didn't. The third one is um, coerce compliance, where basically somebody's become so uncomfortable over a period of time, they figure, screw it. I'm just going to say I did it so I can get out of the room. And that doesn't have to be torture necessarily. It can just be, I've become so annoyed with the fact that nobody's listening to me. I've been trapped in here for four hours. If I just say fine, then I can get out of the room and I can put together a better defense to prove that I didn't do it. When unfortunately it has the opposite reaction. And I I do believe that you're going down the right road in ways to address all three of those. So I, my guess is, the most common, I don't have any data on this, but and I don't know if anybody does. Uh, the most common type of false confession uh, in the American criminal justice system is false plea bargains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think they're necessarily so much as coerced as incentivized. Uh, because I don't think you would have to interrogate people very long at all uh, to get an innocent person a plea bargain. Um, you know, it can be as simple as, uh, 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 a police officer saying, look, I'm going to lie. Said you, you know, I'm going to lie about this evidence. Who's the judge going to believe me or you? Um, you better, you know, you plead guilty, you get probation, not you risk going to jail. Jury's not going to believe you. Right. It's that easy to get a false confession. In some circumstances, unfortunately, I, I don't doubt it. And I certainly, <clears throat> for anybody in law enforcement or family in law enforcement, I'm in no way suggesting that this is no. pervasive or the majority of officers are majority. No, 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 no. It's a, it's yeah, a I'm, I'm sorry problem. if I implied that. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Thanks for correcting. Uh, I don't think it was a correction, just a clarification for, yeah. for people. Um, but yes, you've got somebody who's not familiar with the system. It's almost, and you mentioned this earlier, if someone believes the truth is known, they have less motivation to lie. So one of the questions I get asked with relative frequency, even when I'm teaching leadership or sales or negotiation is, Mike, why the hell did anybody ever confess to you? Which is a fair question, by the way. But generally, people will confess when they believe the truth either is known or will imminently be known. They believe their interviewer is credible and they have the opportunity to save face. You have those three pieces in place. Far more often than not, you're going to get the truth. I, I think sometimes people just do it because the guilt weighs on them. Yes, 100%. 100%. You're correct. And and I think when 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 you do get those plea bargains, I I just I don't think, you know, who's ever getting them, you know, whether it's the, you know, prosecutors or law enforcement, uh I I don't think they're randomly going around framing people. I think they legitimately believe that the person's guilty. Um yeah. so you know, I, I don't think it's intentional, uh, but I, I think people will lie when you incentivize them. I think so. you've got a good point. And it's it's almost the inverse of, I believe the truth is no. Nobody will believe the truth. Right. So if I'll confess because the truth is already known, I may also confess because I'm convinced no one will believe the truth. 
So right. this now becomes my only way out, which is a coerced compliant yeah. false confession. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's a huge one. And thankfully, um, Dave Thompson speaks to it much more specifically than I can. But there is legislation being brought forward all over the country to put further ethical limitations on what can or cannot be said around the existence of evidence. Previously, intrinsic lies were potentially allowed, but extrinsic were not. So I couldn't tell you I'm going to put your mom in jail if you don't tell me the truth, but I could tell you your partner confessed, even though he's in the other room telling me to pronounce it. Um, so there, I don't know the specifics. Dave speaks to it better than I do, but there is legislation being brought forward. And in some instances passed already that looks to put ethical, we'll say guardrails on what and how evidence can be presented. And that's not to undercut law enforcement. They have an extremely difficult and necessary job to do it is to give them the opportunity to be successful while protecting the most vulnerable who find themselves participating in these conversations. Yeah. Agreed. So I have a little bit of inside information that you have some exciting new projects potentially coming down the road. Can, without giving anything away or getting too far ahead, or if you're as superstitious as I am without jinxing anything, can you give us a a heads up on some of the projects that have your attention currently? Sure. Well, I already talked about one, which is the uh, the false confession paper. Uh, but one of the things I've been really, and the truth to fault theory led me to, is the question of how often people lie. And uh, the finding is that people are way more honest uh, than we probably think they are. Um, lying's uh, pretty un- pretty unusual in the entire. You know, if there's some way to sample all communication. Uh, everywhere. Um, Deception and lying are only a tiny part of it. Uh, Further, um, there's big individual differences in how often people lie and tell the truth. Uh, So what we found is, um, I'm sorry, let me... That's all right. Turn off my phone. I should have done that. I should have. Don't had, worry about I'm it. Not Don't worry about it. Um, okay. So I've been very interested in how often uh, people uh, lie and tell the truth. And the finding is uh, most people are normal. We will be called normatively honest. And that is on any given day, uh, they'll lie between zero and maybe two times um, with uh uh, zero or one being very, very common, maybe twice. But then there's a few people we call the the few prolific liars who uh, lie on any given day more than six times. Uh, so one question was, and this one just came out and uh, gotten a lot of press for it. Uh, what we did is we tracked people over three months every day uh, and asked them how long, how many times have you lied? And people are surprisingly honest about how often they lie. Um, and there are people who uh, tend to lie more than six times, lots of times. Uh, uh, so there are, there are kind of stable individual differences in this. Um, and track that down. But what I'm really interested in, I think next, I wanna find out who these prolific liars are for one, but also I wanna unpack 
motives, circumstances, and lie frequency. Because uh, when I teach a, my, I, I teach both graduate and undergraduate classes on deception. And my assignment is you got to keep uh, a semester-long deception diary. And then you tie in your experiences through the semester in your personal life and professional life with what you've been learning in class. And does, does your own experience uh, jive with what you've been learning or not? And I've seen this more than once where I get somebody who would be classified as a prolific liar. They tell tons and tons of lies, but they only do it in a particular context. The most recent one was uh, a woman who worked uh, in a, a woman's apparel shop. And there was a particular lie she told many, many, many times a day. This clo these clothes look good on you. <laughs> uh, right? She goes home. She never lies at home. She never lies outside work hours. This is the only thing she lies about. But she tells, you know, a dozen or two dozen of these a day. There was another one who worked in a doctor's office. The doctor was chronically running late. She was the receptionist. And the doctor instructed her to tell people that the wait would be less long than she knew it would be. So every patient, she's telling the same lie. In, in her normal life, she's totally honest. So the person who looks like a prolific liar, but they're not, they're normally normatively honest, just like everybody else, except for these particular circumstances. Uh, there was another one where uh, her husband and she lived in small town, Alabama, uh, very uh, Christian conservative, and they were closeted liberals. And they would be disowned from their church if um, uh, their true beliefs were outed. So this is, this is like they're honest, honest people, except they're hiding their political orientation uh, from their community. Um, so there's some people that just have a particular thing where the truth's not working, and that's accounting for all their lives. Well, there's other people who just, you know, go around and lie a lot. So I'd really like to start to try to figure out how to unpack this. That's a fascinating set of conclusions to chase down or ideas to chase down. And as I'm listening to that, I think about how often I hear people judged to be a liar and untrustworthy based on one incident. Yes. So when I think back to, and I'm, not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but when I think about a lot of the senior leaders that I work with and senior executives that I work with, a lot of times they'll feel like, and I'm certainly not speaking for all of them, but frequently enough, they'll feel like if somebody they think lied to them one time, that person's written off. They're untrustworthy. They might still work here, but they're untrustworthy. I can't trust right. what they say. They could actually be an extremely trustworthy person. But for whatever reason, in this particular situation, they feel the need to protect themselves against some sort of perceived consequence, real or perceived, so they make the decision to deviate from the truth. So outside of that, they're likely super trustworthy. And inside of that context, if we could figure out a way to approach them differently, go back to your ideas of rapport and empathy. And yeah, all just don't incentivize lying. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if you don't incentivize lying, lying pretty much goes away. One of the conversations I find myself having people 
and if, if I'm using the term incorrectly, please correct me, is asking questions with implied expected answers. Right. And then being upset when they get the answer that the question implies, which is not a truthful answer. It's like you walk them into that one. Sure. At some point we have to say, I still got a personal responsibility to be honest. Okay. I'm not going to ignore that. But if you ask somebody a question in a way that makes it sound like the only acceptable answer is the untrue answer and they give it to you, you have forfeited the right to be angry with them at that because that is how you pose the question to them. This is a, this is a much more subtle, I think, misconception. Um, a, that interviewers have, and it's more general than that, but it, it's particularly relevant in interviews, is we don't realize how much the questions we're answering are shaping the answers. And so some of the things we're observing in other people are because of what we're doing. And we're not, we're not necessarily conscious of that. Yeah. Because our, you know, our focal point is them, right? Yes. We're seeing what they're doing. And we're not understanding how what we're doing is shaping what they're doing. I was recently read a little bit into an ongoing legal proceeding where there's an investigation into one individual and lots of other individuals were being interviewed. And at least according to the defense team, all of these people who are saying things about the person under investigation are either talk about different types of lies, exaggerating or fabricating these stories. And because of the consistency in them, I thought, are the questions on the record? Well, yes, they are. May I see the questions, please? And when you look at the questions, and I can't say if the guy's innocent or not, right? I wasn't there. So I'm not saying this makes the guy innocent. But now when you look at how these people were asked their questions, the interviewer is literally holding them by the hand and walking them down the road where now I am incentivized based on the question alone to potentially embellish or change my answer or build on what somebody else said. Mm -hmm. It's understanding the impact of how we communicate with people. And then uh, I guess I didn't say that in proper English, but understanding how our communication impacts other people's mm -hmm. answers and decision-making process is an enormous opportunity for so many people. Agreed. I can't thank you enough for your time today. It is always great to see you. It is always great to continue to learn from you. I'm excited to continue to read your research as it comes out. I have no doubt that people are listening out of the investigative field, in the investigative field that are interested in your work. I recommend your book consistently to people. If people are looking to find out more about what you do, continue to learn from you, where should they go to find more of your research, more of your work? Well, with the exception of my book, Duke, uh, so that that's available on uh, Amazon. Um, but unfortunately, uh, most of my kind of primary studies uh, are behind paywalls at okay. academic journals. And um, they're, they're written, uh, presuming a PhD level knowledge of, um, statistics and social science, uh, for people who are good taking a stab at academic research, uh, and who don't have a uh, university access, uh, email me, um, 
it's I'm, I'm easy to Google. You can find my Gmail if you Google it. Um, if you want particular PDFs of particular studies, I'm happy to share those with you. Um, I think the modern academic journal system is a total ripoff. If there was a, if I could self-publish everything, I would. Um, unfortunately, that's not the currency uh, my university wants. They they like to pay the publishers absorbent amount of money for work that they funded. Um, and for whatever reason, I think this is smart. But I, I try not to play that game. So you can email me for PDFs. Uh, the best place um, for my work, though, is probably the book, Duped. Um, you know, it, it costs, I don't know what you'd for, used versions are going for. I think new paperbacks, about 30. Um, and not everybody wants to do a uh, commit to reading a whole book. But that's a, that's a good place. For people who are interested in the book, I recommend uh, going through it from start to finish. Um, I it's the the first part's kind of necessary evil setup, but the rest of it won't make much sense if you haven't kind of forced your way through uh, the first few chapters. You should and the end not- it full circle. So so I would I would agree, and it is a bit of a lift. There's a lot of work that's packed in there, and it is a bit technical. But I truly believe that it's written in a way where, and I think this is true for a lot of people when they're experiencing anything on truth and deception, they start relating it to their life. I had this conversation. I was in this situation. Should I have seen that? Did I misrepresent that? So even though there is a a technical lean to how it is written, if people take the time, even if they go through it in pieces and relate it to their own experience, there should be a ton of value that they can pull from it. Yeah, and it, it's way more accessible than uh, than the academic journal articles. Um, it, it, if people are worried about it, read the uh, read the Amazon reviews. Um, I, I I think they're actually pretty good. Kind of all the academics who read it go, "Wow, this is so accessible," and uh, and the people who aren't academics go, "Wow, this is nerdy." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think both can be true. Um, Maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about perspective again, right? Yeah. What we're used to. Um, but that's a fantastic offer to share your PDFs as well. There are plenty of research scientists that wouldn't do that. So thank you very much for that offer. I'll make sure to include uh, some of the online links that I have for you, your email address in the, show, in the show notes. So people who are interested, I'll put a link to your book online. I'm assuming Amazon has it. So I'll put a link. We just said the Amazon review. So I'll put that link on it. So people will be able to access it directly if they want. And again, I cannot thank you enough for coming on, carving an hour out of your day to share your expertise and your insight with us. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. With everything that you have going on, hopefully we can do it again down the road and get some updates and take the conversation in a different direction. Absolutely. Enjoy the day, sir. Thank you very much. You too. Once again, Tim. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us, sharing your time, your research, your insights, your ideas, what's coming next. Clearly, your passion and your thoroughness for what you do shines through. And I believe everybody that listened to this conversation hopefully has a new perspective or maybe a a reconfirmed perspective if they're already familiar with Tim's research or familiar research on what they should be potentially looking or listening for, the value of context, why people may or may not choose to share the truth in any given situation, and how that affects our lives and our ability to communicate with others. So, Tim, thank you so much. 
on the way out, we certainly need to thank our sponsors again as well. As always, Humantel, please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INCOISIVE25 for a 25% discount off of all of their online training if you're interested in expanding your skill set and ability to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling when their facial expressions and body language change. Head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com and explore their ever-growing catalog of emotional intelligence-related resources. And please, for the investigative interviewers, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. Check out their membership benefits, their resources, the online conversation, the certified forensic interviewer designation, and so much more. That organization is dedicated to continuing to further the career of elite interviewers, and they do an amazing job at it. So please check them out at certifiedinterviewer.com. Thank you all for watching and listening today. We're certainly grateful for your time. Thank you. Please do what the algorithms like us to do and give Tim and all of our amazing guests the additional exposure they so richly deserve. We appreciate you liking, sharing, commenting, tell your friends, all of those things for the podcast. Thank you very, very much. Of course, if you have any feedback, please let us know. What have you liked? What have you applied? What didn't you like so much? If you have any people who you think would be a great guest, please reach out. Let us know so we can get them on the show and share their perspective as well. Thank you again for being with us. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.